Today's dead idea, Buddy Genghis. The medieval idea that the Mongols, as in, you know, Genghis Khan and company, were actually Christians coming to fist bump their Western Crusader bros and team up to kick some major Muslim butt. Boy, were they wrong. Which they soon realized when marauding hordes of Mongol horse archers started tearing into their fields, burning their cities, and mass executing their citizens. What in the world possessed them to think that the Mongols would be their buddies? Well, it has a little something to do with the legend of a certain guy named Prester John. That's what we're talking about today on Dead Ideas. Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. The music we just heard was composed by Rachel Westhoff, my lovely wife, whose schoolgirl fantasy of being whisked away by a rugged horseman was apparently a lifelong dream for many medieval Europeans. <laughs> I am BT Newberg. You can call me Brandon. Today we're taking a break from our long series format. We just finished our epic-length series on the medieval Irish geish, which was hella fun. And starting next week, we're going to dive into a new epic length series. We had so much fun, we're just going to keep riding this train. Because actually, the long format really allows us to go deep, deep, deep into a culture and challenge ourselves like never before and deliver to you the quality you truly deserve. So I'll talk more about the topic for our next series at the end of this episode. But for now, let me just say that we'll be going to Russia and today's topic actually sets us up nicely for that, as the Mongols played an interesting role in Russian history. Anyway, today we're doing a one-off single episode topic. It's just me today, no co-hosts, but it's going to be fun. We're talking about a particularly awkward whoopsie-doodle moment in history, the legend of Prester John, or as I like to call him, Buddy Genghis. Because this legend led European Christians to believe that Genghis Khan's hordes were actually going to be their bros. <laughs> and I'd give anything to see that first encounter between a Western Christian and an incoming Mongol marauder. I mean, just, just picture it. <laughs> it's like they crest a hill and come face to face with each other. And the grizzled Mongol like squints and spits out of the side of his mouth. And the Westerner is like, hey, give me five. Come on, man. Don't leave me hanging and silence. <laughs> well, of course, it, it probably didn't happen as perfectly Bill and Ted as all of that, but there was a widespread notion in the 12th century that the Mongols were coming to help. They were the kids from the next town over coming to help the Crusading West beat up their high school rivals, the Muslims. They were going to hit the Muslims from both west and east at the same time and take them out in this like giant pincer move, but then, of course, the moment came when the West was like, wait, oh shit, they're attacking us. They're burning our towns and ravaging our people. They're shutting up our nobles under boardwalks and having picnics on top of them while they suffocate us. Well, crap. <laughs> How did that happen? That's what we're talking about today. What in the world led the Europeans to think that the Mongols were Christians coming to be their buddies? Well, there were actually Christians among the Mongols. Uh, it was a sort of Christianity called Nestorian Christianity, which had spread throughout Central Asia. And the Mongols were actually surprisingly liberal and tolerant when it came to religion. 
and there was a diversity of faiths among them, but not just Christians, there were also Muslims and Buddhists and a sort of native Mongolian religion called Tengriism, among other faiths. But the Europeans, upon hearing that some were Christians, might have assumed that all were Christians, so I guess it wasn't completely absurd that the Mongols might have appeared like a Christian people of the East to the Europeans. And if the Europeans thought they were Christian, then they might have thought that they had common reason to hate the infidel Muslims, because that's how you think when you're a medieval Christian. So it wasn't completely absurd to think that the Mongols might want to team up with them. And by the way, when I say Europeans, I know that sounds broad, I know that sounds vague, but I really actually do mean Europeans, because this weird fake news story that Genghis was coming to help spread throughout the whole of Europe. I'm talking Italy, Germany, Byzantium, Russia, and loads of other places. So yeah, I really do mean Europeans. Anyway, how did this whole thing get started? For that, we have to trace the history of a certain legend of a certain guy named Prester John. Now I'm going to warn you straight up, it's going to take a hop and a skip and a jump before we finally get to the Mongols. We'll get there by the end of the episode, but it's going to be a long build-up because in order to see why the Europeans mistakenly applied this legend to the Mongols, we have to first see how this odd legend got started in the beginning. Okay, all right, enough. Let's get to it. Let's find out about Prester John. Okay, so we'll start with an overview. Prester is a shortening of presbyter, like Presbyterian, and it literally means elder. And at the time, in medieval Europe, it was a title for a priest of high office of some kind, something like that. Prester John was supposedly a king, and such a devout and humble Christian king that he actually preferred the title Prester rather than king. He, supposedly, ruled a lost Christian kingdom somewhere in the east out of contact with the rest of Christendom, but waiting to be discovered. Okay, that's the legend of Prester John. And when I say legend, don't think like a full-on epic story, because there's no more story than I just told you. Think more like fake news, because that is what this really was. It was this false idea that this lost Christian kingdom out there existed and was ruled by this guy, Prester John. And this was popular all the way from the mid-12th century through the 17th century. Because even though this was fake news, it was influential all throughout Europe and its history. The legend of Prester John was actually a major motivation for exploration into Asia, including the famous Marco Polo. Later, after the search in Asia turned up fruitless, explorers started looking elsewhere, including the Americas, finally landing on Ethiopia. Now, Ethiopia actually kind of makes sense because, in point of fact, it's actually the oldest Christian state in history, as in, like, to be Christian all as one country. So it's somewhat appropriate. And it's kind of in the East, from the European perspective, how they kind of thought about the whole Orient and Occident kind of thing, which was screwed up in the first place. But anyway, we'll let that be. So it kind of makes sense that they finally land on Ethiopia as the actual place of Prester John. But of course, when they asked the ruler of Ethiopia about Prester John, he was like, who's that? <laughs> I don't know this guy. Uh, so anyway, the legend of Prester John persisted down through the ages. 
eventually making its way into an action-adventure novel from 1910 by John Buchan called Prester John, which was set in South Africa and featured a Zulu leader who claimed to be descended from the Ethiopian Prester John. And then, after that, the legend even made its way into the modern comic book scene. The comic book scene. In 1966, the Fantastic Four encountered Prester John, and this guy had a vaguely medieval-looking appearance with a bushy red mustache and a blue helmet that looks, to me at least, like an upturned crockpot with eye holes on his head. <laughs> you can see pics of it at uh, in the show notes at our website, www.deadideas.net, by the way. Check that out. Anyway, the Marvel character bore little resemblance to the actual original legend. He was a time-traveling villain in possession of some weird object called the evil eye that gave him superpowers. It was really, really quite different and weird. But anyway, it's crazy that that Presser John legend made it that far, starting from fake news. <laughs> so how did this happen? How did this legend get going? And how did Europeans come to believe that it was the Mongols who were the forces of Prester John? Okay, now let's get into the nitty-gritty details. I'm going to follow closely a dissertation on this by Michael E. Brooks, and I'm also going to be quoting original texts as much as possible. We don't have much, but we've got some good ones. So, Okay, so the earliest known written account of anyone named Prester John comes from the year 1145 CE in the form of a chronicle by a certain bishop, Otto von Friesing. And by this time, the Crusades were already well underway in the Holy Land. And despite initial successes by the European Christian forces, you know, they managed to take Jerusalem and stuff, they kind of got a foothold and were looking like they were doing okay. Then it looked like the Muslims were about to gain the upper hand again. The Seljuk Turks were on the rise, and it looked like they were about to undo everything that had been gained in the Holy Land. And from the European Christians' perspective, it was this sort of, Empire Strikes Back kind of moment for them, and people were scared. And then into this milieu comes this Otto von Friesing saying, Hey guys, uh, I just got a visit from this guy, Bishop Hugh of Jabala, who is fresh back from the Holy Land, who told me a story about this other guy named Prester John. What do you make of this? And here's Otto's actual words, as translated by James Brundage. Otto says, He said, indeed, that not many years since, one John, a king and priest living in the Far East, beyond Persia and Armenia, and who with his people is a Christian, but a Nestorian, had warred upon the so-called Samiards, the brother kings of the Medes and Persians. And it's interesting that they say, like, Medes and Persians. These are, these are Muslim peoples by this point, but they use uh, kind of biblical names that they would have known from like the Old Testament for them. Uh, so, you know, you see kind of the difference in perspective there. Anyway, Otto continues, John also attacked Ebectanus, which I imagine must be Ekbetana, a uh, Persian city, the capital of their kingdom. When the aforesaid kings advanced against him with a force of Persians, Medes, and Assyrians, a three-day struggle ensued, since both sides were willing to die rather than to flee. At length, Prester John, so he is usually called, put the Persians to flight and emerged from the dreadful slaughter as victor. 
the bishop said that the aforesaid John moved his army to aid the church of Jerusalem, but that when he came to the Tigris, the Tigris River, and was unable to take his army across it by any means, he turned aside to the north, where he had been informed that the stream was frozen solid during the winter. There he awaited the ice for several years, but saw none because of the temperate weather. His army lost many men on account of the weather to which they were unaccustomed, and he was compelled to return home. Wow. Imagine that. Okay, so imagine hearing that now uh, as a European Christian. Wow. I mean, what a news story. Here was a hitherto unknown Christian kingdom who's sticking it to him, giving him the old one-two punch. Now, notice this isn't the Mongols yet. Far from it still. But it's a kingdom that's vaguely to the east somewhere, beyond the Muslim lands, over there. And anyway, who cares? Because the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? The scholar Brooks even puts it succinctly here. The prevailing belief throughout medieval and early modern Europe was that any enemy of Islam must, by definition, be a Christian. <laughs> because that's just what you think when you're a medieval Christian. So imagine the wonder and the hope that this might stir for the Crusades. Right at this Empire Strikes Back moment, here comes an ally to save the day. But here's the thing. Notice this Prester John guy doesn't actually save the day. He gives hope because he defeats in battle the Muslims, but he doesn't actually save the day. And this gives a clue to the possible motives behind this fake news story. You see, Prester John as I said, defeats the Muslims, but then he's stopped by the river Tigris and can't come to the aid of the Crusaders. So who has to answer that call? More European Christian Crusaders. Aha! Uh -huh. Was this possibly a report that was cleverly designed as a fake news ploy to draw more Crusaders to the aid of the Holy Land? Who's to say? Whether it was Otto von Friesing behind this, or Hugh of Jabala, or someone else, we just don't know. We don't have that part of the historical story. But in any case, there it was, the first appearance of Prester John, lost Christian king of the East, hope of the Crusades. Now this story started to circulate. And then people remembered that not too long before this, in 1122, a guy had supposedly turned up in Rome claiming to be the patriarch of India, and a similar event had happened in Constantinople, with a guy calling himself the Archbishop of India. And pretty soon people were saying that there was a lost Christian kingdom in India. And this, of course, just had to be the kingdom of Prester John. And now, at this point in, this, in history, Brooks says that India was, quote, understood by late medieval Europeans to simply refer to any lands that lay to the south and or east of the Byzantine Empire. <laughs> so, in other words, India is just this strange exotic place, like way over there somewhere. I mean, it might as well have been Oompa Loompa land. So, this now becomes Prester John's India. And we're still not to the Mongols yet, but we've, this is the link that gets us there. Trust me, it's coming. Meanwhile, it was very easy for the Europeans to pin all kinds of hopes and imaginings on this distant land of India and its mysterious king, and stories started to spread. And <laughs> once the ball got rolling, 
it was like it it was it, it was like that video game Katamari Damashi if you've ever played that I don't know what the name is in English, that's a Japanese name, but it's this game where you play a ball that rolls around the city, and you start off small, but as you roll, you roll up buildings and other things, and you get bigger and bigger until you can roll up the whole city into one big ball. And that's what this story kind of was like. Eventually, it would include bits that were clearly lifted from all kinds of other stories, including romances about Alexander the Great, and even from Sinbad the Sailor. <laughs> <laughs> and the, all these bits just get reimagined as part of this new Prester John story. And this story was a hit. Then, the next big thing that happens, in 1165 CE, a letter arrives from, you guessed it, Prester John. A letter supposedly from Prester John himself in his own hand. Okay. So this was supposedly a letter that Prester John wrote to the Byzantine Emperor, Manuel I Comnenus. And I'm going to read it to you, and it's going to be crazy. <laughs> it's great. It's like something out of a Dungeons and Dragons module. It Just roll with it. Just hear me out. <laughs> it is too long to read all of it. I'm going to read the choicest parts of it but it's definitely good and worth citing at length. Okay, this comes from a translation that's cited in Bering Gould, if you're keeping track of references, which also are in our show notes at our website, by the way, as they always are. Okay, here we go. The letter from Prester John to the Byzantine Emperor. John, priest by the almighty power of God and the might of our Lord Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords, to his friend Emmanuel, Prince of Constantinople, greeting, wishing him health, prosperity, and the continuance of divine favor. Our Majesty has been informed that you hold our excellency in love, and that the report of our greatness has reached you. After that, he has a little bit about exchanging gifts and whatnot with the Emperor, and then he continues, Should you desire to learn the greatness and excellency of our exaltedness, and of the land subject to our scepter, then hear and believe. I... Presbyter Johannes, the Lord of Lords, surpass all under heaven in virtue, in riches, and in power. Seventy-two kings pay us tribute. In the three Indies, our magnificence rules, and our land extends beyond India, where rests the body of the holy apostle Thomas. It reaches towards the sunrise over the wastes, and it trends toward deserted Babylon near the Tower of Babel. Seventy-two provinces, of which only a few are Christian, serve us. Each has its own king, but all are tributary to us. So that's an interesting little bit that, yes, he's Christian, but he has non-Christians underneath him, therefore giving the other Christians hope that he can conquer non-Christians like the Muslims. Eh? Pretty clever. He goes on to describe his kingdom, and this is where it starts to sound a little like a Dungeons & Dragons module. Our land is the home of elephants, dromedaries, camels, crocodiles, metacolonarum, cometanus, tensivites. I have no idea what any of those are. I even tried to look it up, and even scholars don't know what those are. Wild asses, white and red lions, white bears, white marules, whatever that is, crickets, griffins, 
tigers, lamias, hyenas, wild horses, wild oxen, and wild men, men with horns, one-eyed men, men with eyes before and behind, centaurs, fawns, satyrs, pygmies, 40 L-high giants, <laughs> and, and I did look up an L, an L is about 18 inches, it's the length of a forearm from elbow to finger, and our word elbow actually comes from L. He continues, Cyclopses and similar women. <laughs> it is home to of the phoenix and of nearly all living animals. We have some people subject to us who feed on the flesh of men and of prematurely born animals and who never fear death. When any of these people die, their friends and relations eat them ravenously, for they regard it as a main duty to munch human flesh. <laughs> so now he's got cannibals in his kingdom, and then he goes on to say that he even has these cannibals in his army. He says, We lead them at our pleasure against our foes, and neither man nor beast is left undevoured, if our majesty gives the requisite permission. And when all our foes are eaten, then we return with our hosts home again. <laughs> so... So this guy's coming not just to kick some Muslim butt, but to eat it too. <laughs> oh man, it just it it just goes on and on like this. He says, in our lands, height zone, are worms called salamanders. These worms can only live in fire, and they build cocoons like silkworms, which are unwound by the ladies of our palace and spun into cloth and dresses which are worn by our exaltedness. These dresses, in order to be cleaned and washed, are cast into flames. <laughs> so, forget dry cleaning. This guy is so magnificent, his clothes have to be flame cleaned. <laughs> they, have to be, they have to be cleaned by fire. And then it, it, just, it just goes on, okay? There's just a few more bits that I want to quote. Oh, here. Before our palace stands a mirror, the ascent to which consists of five and twenty steps of porphyry and serpentine. This mirror is guarded day and night by three thousand men. We look therein, and behold all that is taking place in every province and region subject to our scepter. So now he's got mirror, mirror on the wall, even. Well, this letter was forwarded to Frederick I of the Holy Roman Empire, which is basically Germany, and copies of it would eventually be translated into all different languages. I mean, over 100 copies are extant even today, including German, French, Italian, Anglo-Norman, Hebrew, and even a late medieval Scottish dialect. So this letter got around. Clearly, it was a forgery. <laughs> There's no contest, right? But at this point, if you are a medieval Christian, you... You just, you want to believe. I mean, it's, it's like getting a letter from Santa Claus. And it causes a sensation in Europe. Parts of the letter are even made into song. And no one wants to believe in this letter from Santa more than Pope Alexander III, who writes back. In 1177, he sends a reply letter with his physician Philip, who rides off into the east and is never heard from again. <laughs> so... Presumably, he dies, gets lost, the letter is lost with him. We don't have the text of it, unfortunately, but it would have been precious. <laughs> what does he write back to Santa Claus? <laughs> how, 
how is his letter back equally crazy? Is he credulous toward that or incredulous? I, I wish we knew. We don't. But you can only imagine. Anyway, now comes the point in the story where we finally get to the Mongols. Okay. By the 13th century, things had gone completely foobar in the Holy Land. <laughs> this, there's just no other way to put it. Like, after the First Crusade, they never really had a, a break again. It, and they were on the Fifth Crusade by now, and they had all just gone crappy. In 1221, the Bishop of Acre, Jacques de Vitry, comes back with a story that kind of sort of smokescreens just how much of a fuck-up the Fifth Crusade was. And he says, hey, guys, good news. Guess what? King David of India, who is nothing less than the grandson of Prester John, is kicking some major butt against the Muslims right now. He's conquered Persia already, and now he's getting ready to take Baghdad. Well, this story was fake news again, but actually not completely. It actually had a kernel of truth. Kinda. Sorta because someone had been attacking the Persians from the east, and someone did in fact eventually end up sacking Baghdad, but it wasn't anyone named King David of India. It was, in fact, the Mongols. Mm -hmm. This is where they enter the story. And now this would have been Hulagu Khan, grandson of Genghis Khan. So if Hulagu is King David, and King David is the grandson of Prester John, then that means that Prester John is none other than the great Genghis Khan. You follow me? There you have it, buddy Genghis. Now the identification of Prester John with the Mongols was cemented further in 1141 when the Seljuk Turks were defeated in battle by the Karakitai Empire, which was an empire in Central Asia. They were not actually Mongols. In fact, they were about to be conquered by the Mongols themselves. But to the Europeans, all those Central Asian steppe people all over there just kind of looked the same. <laughs> and so the idea of a Mongolian Prester John became even more entrenched. And Prester John, by this point, was definitely Buddy Genghis. Now, where does the story go from here? Where is that crazy, oh shit moment where the Europeans finally realize that their bro is not actually a bro. For this final part of the story, we have to go to the back porch of Europe, the first place to be hit by the Mongols, Russia, or rather the various principalities of the Rus, as it was known at the time. Now the Russians had their own version of Prester John's letter. It was a little bit different. It reached Russia in 1165, which is the same year that the version I read to you before hit elsewhere in Europe. But in this version, the Russian version, Prester John did not simply inform the emperor of the wonders of his kingdom, but actually sneered boastfully at the emperor. <laughs> Check it out. Brooks translates, Tell your Tsar Manuel, if you wish to know all my resources and the wonders of my realm of India, sell your Grecian realm and buy paper, and come to my kingdom of India with your scribes, and I will let you make an inventory of my land of India, and you will not be able to make an inventory of my kingdom before your death. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so the, the tone in that letter is very different. And that 
just might reflect the different political situation in Russia and Byzantium. You see, Byzantium and Russia were at odds at the time, and whoever it was who disseminated this version of the letter among the Russians may have been motivated to make the Byzantine emperor appear lesser, at the very least that there's someone else more powerful than him, and that can only have emboldened the Russians. So the letter makes it appear that Prester John is wealthy so far beyond the emperor that the net worth of the entire Byzantine Empire is barely worth the paper it would take to inventory the riches of Prester John. And even then, you couldn't finish the inventory in one lifetime. <laughs> so, so, anyway, the point of the story is the Russians were just as familiar with the Prester John legend as anyone else in Europe, and no doubt had probably heard many of the same rumors that this fabulous king of India was none other than the supposed scourge of the Muslims, Genghis Khan. Now, the Mongols did, in fact, destroy many Muslim states. They were kind of the scourge of the Muslims, but it had nothing to do with Islam, or it was nothing to do with religion at all. Many Mongols were, in fact, Muslims themselves. And it was simply the fact that these Muslim states were geographically closer and full of riches, and Europe was basically a relative backwater. I mean, it was, it was a secondary target at best after these Muslim states. So who do the Mongols attack first? The Muslim states. But then, of course, once the Mongols had used them up and torn through these Muslim states and reached all the way to the borders of the Europe, they didn't think twice about carrying on the party to their next target. Now, what a surprise it must have been when the Europeans' beloved buddy Genghis, bro above all bros, took out his horse archer bow and knocked an arrow and trained it on them. And unfortunately, there is no particular first-hand account that I know of that we can turn to, but I can only imagine what it must have been like. And in my mind, I like go over the top and see it. <laughs> okay, in my, in my imagination, it's this scene where Europeans are like waiting at the airport <laughs> with a sign that says, Welcome, Prester John. And then the Mongols ride their horses right off the airplane, and they're like whooping and hollering and shooting their arrows from horseback and just like raising hell all over the place. And they like take out a Cinnabon on their way to like, I don't know, rape and pillage the duty-free shop or something. <laughs> the Europeans just have this moment where they just let out a slow motion Oh, fuck. <laughs> so, I mean, it had to be something like that anyway. I mean, because here's what actually happened in history. So, the Mongols attack a neighbor state of Russia, ask the Russians for help. The Russians nearby decide to help. Not everybody, of course, was hook, line, and sinker on the idea that the Mongols were Christians. I mean, there was variety, like there always is, or... Um, fake news and rumors and things like that. So anyway, maybe they were uh, obligated by alliance to help. Whatever, they help. Okay? So they, the Russians engage the Mongols in battle, and the Mongols wipe the floor with them in 1223 at the Battle of Kalka. Then after that, just a little side story, Genghis Khan himself dies, and then uh, his successor, Ogadai, takes over as Khan, and then the Mongols come back. In 1236, they invade the Volga region, because they've had a taste of Europe, and they're like, eh, these guys are pushovers, let's see what we can get. So they invade the Volga region. The Russian city of Ryazan 
is completely annihilated in 1237. Then Moscow and Kolomna are burned to the ground. In 1238, Vladimir is besieged and burned to the ground. And the royal family actually dies in the fire. Then 14 cities are ransacked. Then Kiev, one of the greatest of all cities in the Rus at the time, falls in 1240 to the Mongols. I mean, they just rip through Russia like a paper sack. And it's crazy. It just... <laughs> and then they're still not done. They go on to ravage further west because they're determined to reach the ultimate sea, the point at which they can no longer go, which, I mean, geographically, I suppose, would be the Atlantic. And they just tear the Europeans a new one. They do that in Transylvania, in Poland, in Croatia, in Hungary, and so on down the line. And the Mongols' advance is only halted in 1242 by a stroke of luck. The death of the then great Khan Ogadai causes all the Mongol generals to have to return to Mongolia to elect a new great Khan, and that pulls them out of Europe. Now, historians do speculate on other reasons why they might have retreated, like weather in Europe at the time, or um, Hungarian fortifications making it difficult to take cities and they get bogged down, but, I mean, that's neither here nor there. The point is that the Europeans just barely come out of this alive, just by the skin of their teeth, probably mostly just by a stroke of amazing luck. And that was how the Europeans learned that Buddy Genghis and his posse were not their bros. <laughs> but the crazy thing is, after that, they still didn't give up on this Prester John legend. They just looked for new places and peoples to pin it onto. And by the 14th century, it was still a major influence driving Europeans to explore eastward. In fact, in an amazing turn of irony, this exploratory impulse is enabled by the Mongols, the very people who wrought havoc just a century before in Europe, helps them actually explore into Asia because the Mongol Empire, at the very least, brings secure roads all the way across Asia. So the Europeans are able to venture much deeper into that great unknown space than they ever could before, and they do so looking for the true kingdom of Prester John. And one among them is Marco Polo, who writes in his travels that Prester John had actually ruled a kingdom in Asia before he was defeated by Genghis Khan. So he puts it one step back. Not the Mongols, but somebody the Mongols defeated. Other people at the time, though, still said it, it was the Mongols. They just, <laughs> they wouldn't give up on it. Still later, they were still thinking this way when William Shakespeare writes his play, Much Ado About Nothing. He has a character say, I will fetch you a toothpicker now from the farthest inch of Asia, bring you the length of Prester John's foot. <laughs> So they're still thinking that way, but eventually, repeated frustrations attempting to find Prester John's kingdom in Asia leads the European imagination to shift elsewhere. And at that point, pretty much any unknown place could serve as Prester John's home. Japan was proposed. That was actually the Russians who proposed Japan. And the Americas were even proposed. And everywhere that they proposed, this spurred exploration. And it, this was, in fact, a significant factor in European expansion, colonial expansion. Anyway, in the end, the final consensus yeah, finally lands on this place in Africa called Ethiopia, 
it's nearer than other places being proposed, but Ethiopia, if you actually look at it geographically, it's kind of like rimmed in by mountains. It's hard to get to, so it's the perfect place to put a mysterious kingdom. And like I said at the beginning, it was, in fact, the world's oldest actual Christian state, so it kind of made sense. But, of course, the response of the Ethiopians themselves was generally, who the fuck is Prester John? But that never stopped a good myth, so it stuck. The legend of Prester John stuck to Ethiopia after that, and persisted down through the ages, eventually finding its way into that 1910 adventure novel by John Buchan with a Zulu chieftain claiming to be descended from the Ethiopian Prester John, and then finally we get all the way to the Marvel comic book universe with a time-traveling Prester John with an upturned crockpot of a helmet on his head. That's how we get <laughs> we get that far. I mean, I just, I love that it's, it's a fake news story. It started out as fake news, right? But it just built, and it built, and it kept going throughout history. And I had never even heard this until this, like, a passing reference I turned up somewhere on some, I was researching something else entirely. I'd never even heard of Prester John, but it had all this long influence, and so much so that it makes it even into Marvel comic books. <laughs> I mean, I'm not holding my breath for the next uh, Marvel movie to have, like, Prester John starring Gerard Depardieu. I don't know. <laughs> but but uh, anyway, there you have it. From Prester John to Buddy Genghis to Marvel comic books coming to your theater this summer. Well, we have to cut it off there. That's it for today, folks. Next week, we will begin our new series, which, as I said, is going to be another monster-sized epic length adventure. We had so much fun doing the Geish series that we're just going to keep on riding this train, and in fact it was the Geish series that inspired the next topic, which I will reveal now. After learning so much interesting stuff about medieval Irish social structure, and how different it was than your stereotypical medieval image of knightly lord and downtrodden peasant, I became interested in other kinds of peasant social structures, which led me to the idea of serfdom which is the legal condition of being tied in bondage to the land, owned by your landlord, and pretty much a slave able to be bought and sold at will. And that was popular during medieval Europe, but died out uh, in the early Renaissance. But just about at that time, I discovered, Russia was like serfdom, you say? Tell me more. <laughs> and that was like, well, how... Why, why does Russia pick up on serfdom at the same time that it's dying out elsewhere in Europe? That got me really interested. And so that's going to be the topic for our next long-form series. We're going to be talking about Russian serfdom. And also, by the way, the Mongol invasion of the Rus was actually a major influence in creating the conditions ripe for serfdom to arise. So that's going to be an, an interesting connection between today's episode and our series to come. So you do not want to miss this one. It's going to be interesting. It's going to be fun. We are going to bring Russian serfdom to you in all its tragic glory. There's going to be bears and balalaika and everything else. <laughs> it's going to be great. <laughs> so see you next week for that. Folks, if you like what we're doing here, if you like the kind of massively detailed, epic-length historical stories that we're telling you, that we're delivering to you one after another like it's Christmas all year long or something, why not support the show 
you can go to www.patreon.com forward slash deadideaspod and as thanks for your contribution, you can get some great perks, like your portrait drawn in the time period and culture of your choosing. And that's right, if you want, you can even get your portrait drawn as whoever that first Russian schmuck was who attempted to shake hands with Buddy Genghis. <laughs> or whatever you want. We don't care. Just support the show, and we will make you look awesome. We promise. All right, everybody. See you next week.